Today is part two of our interview with Angela Dodge. Angela is a registered dietitian nutritionist, and she spoke with us on Monday's episode about iron deficiency. What is iron deficiency? What are some of the risk factors? What might a parent be looking for when it comes to identifying, is this something that may be of concern for your family? In today's episode, we are going to get into a little bit more on if additional iron is merited in the diet, especially knowing that so many families who listen to this show do have more selective eaters who likely have a selective diet that omits certain foods or food groups, including those that might be iron containing. And so we want to be cognizant of how, if and how I should say, and with what we could be supplementing iron, what things we can do from a lifestyle perspective that could benefit our whole family's diet, and how we can approach iron in the diet specifically with picky eaters. I want to give you some real tangible action steps for how you can monitor and evaluate things like iron deficiency in your kids in today's episode. But I also want to encourage you that if you haven't listened to episode one, go back and listen to Monday's episode first. That'll give you a little bit more context for what we're chatting about. And then come back to tune in for today's episode where we'll go into the second part of our conversation. Hey mama, I'm Ashley and welcome to the Veggies and Virtue podcast. In this podcast, you will find simple menu ideas, kitchen organizational systems spelled out for mom life and feeding tips and tricks that are both evidence-based and grace-laced. I believe that you can find flexibility when it comes to feeding your family so that you can feel calm, capable, and connected in the kitchen. As a registered dietitian and Christian mom of three myself, I want you to break free from the mealtime battles and to feel equipped while feeding your kids all day long. Pull up a stool at my kitchen counter and let me pour you a cup of coffee and say a quick prayer for you. It's time to chat about the mealtimes, messes, moments, and ministry of motherhood. Okay, so today we are going to pick up in part two of two as we talk about iron deficiency and potential needs for supplementation in the diet and kind of how to approach this with a child who we maybe now know has a need for additional iron. So if you haven't yet listened, tune back to Monday's episode, part one, where we first kind of identify some of the risk factors, the signs and symptoms, and how to go about checking for iron deficiency in your kid. But we have Angela Dodge back on the show today to help us kind of walk through what her recommendations, advice, and action plan would be for a child that we know may need that additional iron support. So Ange, thanks so much for being here with us again today and for sharing your wealth of knowledge with everyone on this topic of iron. Thank you. I'm glad to be back again. Hopefully I didn't talk too much last time. (laughs) No, no. I think, you know, these interviews are so helpful because I think it's so many of the questions parents ask, but you know, you and I both know Google is a great place, but oftentimes as dietitians, we're like, oh goodness, if you Google it, you may or may not ever get to the right answer. So I think hopefully parents who have some of these questions or concerns are feeling like a lot of the things are being brought up and kind of navigated through with them. So they know how to approach it most efficiently. So as obviously I'm not going to kind of recap too much of the last episode. I'd love for people to go back and listen to that one on Monday. If um, they have more questions about kind of how to even identify if this is something that might be a challenge in their family, but I often see it and I'm sure you do as well. I think when we look at the different seasons of life that parents are more privy to iron being of importance. As women, we have some basic level of understanding of when iron is needed, whether it be with pregnancy, postpartum, menstruation, different seasons and things like that. But then as parents, we look at it too, 
with maybe needing to supplement iron or maybe when our child is an infant, we're more aware of, you know, kind of the risks of iron deficiency. But walk through with us what the supplementation guidelines will be. And again, knowing that it's not universal, this is something we kind of alluded to in the first episode, but how we parents can begin to monitor if that additional supplementation is even necessary in infancy. And then as solids are introduced and then as a child grows and develops. So depending on the different ages and stages a family may have in, you know, within their home with their children, they can kind of track not only some of the things we talked about in episode one, but also depending on the life stage where their child's at, is this a season that you tend to see? Yes. You know, half the kids this age are tending to need additional supplementation. They just tend to not be getting enough iron in by way of their diet, or especially if they're not taking any additional supplementation. Yeah. It, it waxes and wanes throughout infancy to toddlerhood to adolescence and how much we need. But I think, you know, you might have, I, I could start in infancy if we want, because I find that's where we're sort of building up that that top not tolerance but the amount of iron that's in the little one's body to go forward so if you have an infant um, and they are breastfed usually they're depending on Canada U.S. around the world when and if we supplement but if you're breastfeeding your your infant up until about you know six months generally you don't need any iron at that time um Kind of they, they're really good at sort of taking everything it needs from mom, taking all that iron that it needs. It, it might be a different story if mom is also iron deficient when she was pregnant. Also, she might have lower stores as well. So there's there's things like that. But generally, term baby is fine until about six months. Then that's when we start introducing those iron rich foods, still continue to breastfeed. And that's fine as long as babe is sort of eating enough and that's always hard because parents are like oh I don't know what is enough I'm not sure <laughs> so it is a little bit difficult um, to to monitor that usually that's when they do like a well baby check and they'll just do a blood works anywhere between like eight nine twelve months um, and check for for iron status then I see the problem mostly in kids over the age of one when they've sort of transitioned off of breast milk maybe or iron fortified cereal they're moved on to a cow's milk or a nut milk of some kind they're not getting any iron from those sources so cow's milk nut milks they're they have very low iron in them or none at all and so if they're not getting a rich diet in in solids of iron then that's where i see sort of the transition start to happen and then kids start to drink a lot of milk they love milk I don't know if you see this bait toddlers they still have a bottle maybe they're drinking a ton of milk I've seen like 30 40 50 60 ounces of milk that they're having every day so if you have a baby that's doing that or a toddler sorry not not baby because they do need a lot of milk when they're babies um, but more in that toddler phase they're drinking a lot they're not getting any other food because if you're drinking 60 ounces of milk your tummy is really tiny so you're not getting any they're just they show no interest in food and that's where the iron deficiency comes in because they grow really well so a parent might be like but look they're growing they're getting a lot of um, 
protein and calories and things from milk. So they look good. They're growing, they're gaining weight, but they have no iron. And so then they become real pale. <laughs> they start to, you maybe their their words start to back off. They kind of regress a little bit in their motor function. Um, they just get really tired. They're not really engaging like they normally would have. And that's where from that point on, we don't catch it and start to intervene then. It can just lead into long-term iron deficiency into into more of the older ages, childhood and adolescence. But and I never mean to scare people because what I see is, you know, when I worked in cancer, like I feel like everybody had cancer or everybody had where that's not necessarily true. So I just want, I never want to frighten people. I just want people to be cautious of those types of things that can just to look for. And I think it's helpful too, because so often, you know, as we talked about before in episode one about kind of, well, it's normal. Their mm-hmm. blood work comes back normal. You know, this is normal. You know, them drinking milk is normal. normal. And as you said, their growth can be normal. Mm-hmm. I know that we talked about how growth can be impacted depending on kind of where their iron status is. But oftentimes, as we see with a lot of picky eaters, their caloric needs may, and maybe even their macro needs may be met by something like an overconsumption of milk. But when we look at those micronutrients like iron, we see there's, yes, they're, they're eating or drinking or overall consuming enough to, you know, gain weight. They're not falling off the growth chart. None of the kind of those red flags that we're often most familiar with, or parents I think are most commonly kind of waiting to see if it happens before intervening. But instead we're seeing, but that doesn't mean that the nutrient needs are necessarily being met. So you you would feel so awful. I just thinking back when you're in, when I worked in hospital, that's when kids are coming in and they're really iron deficient, obviously. And parents are just like, I didn't know, like you feel so terrible for them because they're like, but I, milk is good. Like I was told to offer milk and that's okay. And, you know, I, I, I didn't know what I should look for until now we've, I've been admitted into hospital and they feel awful and guilty. And that's not what we're trying to do in shaming people. It's more just education. And yes, this should have been talked about. And, and please don't give your child any more than 24 ounces of milk a day, <laughs> like just those types of things. And when we start educating and backing off on, on things like that milk or it's like night and day and their kid, they start talking again They start, you know, they can, their motor function comes back, all of those things. So. Well, and I think it's, I mean, one, I know you do such a phenomenal job giving so much free education and awareness out. So families do kind of start having it come top of mind and start actually thinking through some of these things that parents may not know to even think about until it's not too late, because again, it can, it can be corrected, but until it's gotten further than we would hope for it to go. But so often, and I'm sure you see this as well. So often families are kind of just to cover their bases, they're giving a multivitamin. They're saying, mm-hmm. well, I know that my child's, and I mean, this is so classic for both of us. I can just feel you and I both being like, oh yeah, this is normal. <laughs> yeah. Like where it's like, yes, their macronutrient needs are being met. Yes, their weight status is stable, but their diet is rather poor. Mm-hmm. And so the child's taking a multivitamin to just kind of make up for whatever they're not eating or you know those micronutrients that they're missing because if they're on the beige diet, And we know they're not getting the colorful fruits and veggies and things like that, or, you know, very 
adventurous that the different proteins or plant-based options that they're eating, the parents may kind of just say, well, by default, it seems like it's better than nothing to at least offer a multivitamin to cover my basis for my child. So I would love to hear from you kind of how do you approach that with families and where would your recommendation be in terms of whether or not it's suitable for um, a child with low iron, if a family kind of suspects, especially if they listen to our first episode and they say, you know, I do kind of have this concern, but we can't get into the pediatrician or we're just going to kind of wait and see, you know, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll just start a multivitamin while we wait. Where would you kind of uh, encourage the parent to take that thought process? And what would you say is maybe, uh, I don't want to say better because I think that, you know, insinuates yeah. <laughs> uh, what they're doing is wrong, but you know, what would you say the best practice approach would be for a family if they have suspicion that their child's iron needs aren't being met? Um, how would you kind of recommend that they go about that, whether it be from food and or added supplementation? Mm-hmm. I can tell we maybe feel the same way. <laughs> I don't recommend them um, a multivitamin just because if it's somebody with an iron deficiency or a low iron, a couple of reasons. Um, most multivitamins don't have enough of anything in them to do any sort of movement on a deficiency or low iron. Um, I don't know, they might have two milligrams, three, four, I don't, I don't really ever use them. They're generally, if you're taking iron, we don't want it mixed with a multivitamin, it can kind of some of the nutrients in there can interact with iron. And so, you know, you think you're taking it, but it's not actually being absorbed. So it's not really the best option. So I generally if it's always a hard one, because iron as I said, and I think in the first episode, we talked about higher doses can be considered a drug. So even if I'm recommending a high dose over 30 milligrams a day like that, I have to talk to a physician because that's considered a class, I don't know, class one or two, I can't remember, but class drug. So it's not something I just say everyone should be on. Now, in saying that there are maintenance doses that are generally safe, um, for kids to take like a five or 10 milligram um, liquid or chewable or something like that, that I would feel okay with recommending to people. Um, in saying that I know most every I can say out of there's been one child that's had a high iron that I've ever seen. And that was because there was a metabolic problem um, issue that, you know, I'm glad we didn't give iron <laughs> in high doses. But generally, they're always low, always, always low. So giving a little maintenance dose of five to 10 milligrams, depending on age is fine. I, I would feel confident with that. And you can usually buy those on the shelf. Um, there's a few good companies that I like in Canada um, that are tolerated pretty, pretty decently, that would be okay to give in the meantime until you have blood work done for sure. Because food and I've said this to you, I think offline, I, I am a food, I'm a more a supplement focused dietitian. I'm sort of backwards in that. Um, I work with supplements first, and then sort of introducing more foods, because it, especially in iron deficiency, if they have a confirmed deficiency, food will do nothing there, you'd have to eat, I don't, I don't even there would be no volume that a child would be able to eat to move 
those numbers in the right direction at all. So I tend to say, let's just, you know, okay, you can offer iron retrieves, but let's get a supplement into them. Um, there's things like a, I don't know if you've heard of lucky iron fish before. Yes. Yeah. So we use that a lot um, as well. So it's basically just a little fish. I think they have a leaf also shaped now. It's in the shape uh, of a fish or a leaf, and it's just a little iron leaf. And it I always it sounds weird if you say leeches out iron because that doesn't sound right. It releases iron when you cook with it. So then you can get a little bit more into the food as well. But generally safe. I wouldn't I wouldn't give a multivitamin, but that's my recommendation. You might have something different. But. <laughs> no, and I think that's really helpful. And and again, I think when there's a known uh, nutrient of concern with a family, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. especially with you and I often working with families that have other challenges going on, these often, and it, it, it may be because there could be a lot of other things that are predisposing them as a risk factor outside of their diet. So even if they're a very adventurous eater, they could have something else going on that's, you know, compromising their iron status or iron absorption or things like that. But so often the multivitamin approach just kind of masks everything else where it almost makes it feel like we don't need to be proactive or we don't need to intervene or we don't need to really be intentional about diet or supplementation. When the reality is that to your point, oftentimes I will say, well, the supplement is the fastest, most efficient and effective way to get us back on track and start improving in this case, obviously iron status. And then while that's doing its work on the back end, you know, and as assuming that we can get the child to take the supplement, then let's start being able to look at how we incorporate more iron rich foods. What are some of the approaches we can do? Let's look at the diet. Let's look at the food choices that they, you know, are preferable towards and things like that. And then, but as we know, if behavior change was easy, our job yeah. Would probably be non- <laughs> non-existent. And, but as with adults, but especially with kids and with, you know, maintaining a responsive feeding approach, we can't just force feed our kids the iron that would need to be consumed yeah. in order to get their needs um, met and also their deficiencies corrected. So I think that's really helpful for families to kind of know that that type of maintenance dose, you mm-hmm. know, might be helpful, especially in the interim, if they haven't yet pursued additional testing or, you know, support in that area. So do you usually see with the, or I should say with the clients, you usually see kind of what's the trajectory in terms of after either a confirmed iron deficiency, or, I mean, we'll start there. Cause I think without the data to start with, you know, it's hard to kind of be able to monitor and evaluate how well the intervention is going, but what would you say that typically is kind of the timeline and the trajectory of a child who has a confirmed iron deficiency. You you get the blood work back, you can see that their iron is low and you begin supplementing it, whether it be with a therapeutic dose or with kind of more a, you know, smaller maintenance dose, what's kind of that timeline? Cause you've suggested a little bit in the last episode in this one of how some of the things we can see night and day rather quickly, other things take a little bit longer to kind of see the positive impact from but walk a family through a little bit more of kind of what to expect after diagnosis and what that process looks like. Mm-hmm. And I think I just want to reiterate every kid is different, especially that I see some react to it really well. So basically what what happens? So a child is suspected to be iron deficient. We get blood work. We look at those numbers. We think, oh, okay. So what, 
what range are we going to give them in terms of, of a dose, depending on how low their ferritin or their hemoglobin is. Um, those therapeutic doses can be quite high. Um, so you'll be put on a dose, the child will be put on a dose depending on those numbers. And I can't give those numbers out because I don't want any parent to be like, I'm going to give 100 milligrams on here today. Um, but working with someone, we usually start that within, this is, this is ensuring they're taking it every day. So we treat iron like you would treat a medication or a drug in terms of taking it consistently, same time, usually trying to every day um, for a good amount of time. So that could be anywhere between three and six months that we might take those consistently and then I know I hate to say it again, but they have to have another poke to get to get the numbers to be able to see, okay, where are we on? Are we, are, do we need more? Do we need less? Is it working? Do we need a different type of iron? Um, a different time of day? Maybe we go to every other day. Like there's certain things that we have to work through, but it can take a long time for those long, like to actually see the number changing but it does require monitoring after the fact. Unfortunately, I wish I could say it didn't, but it can be, it can sometimes take up to, you know, three, six, nine, 12 months for a number to change, but some are quick. It does, it's, I don't know why, like maybe they just absorb it better. Like there's different, obviously things that are going to affect how they absorb it. And maybe they don't like that like like the kind or it doesn't suit them well or whatever it is so we just have to work on those things but it can be a long time sure and I think as I hear you say that one other thing I had wanted to ask you about is because it does take some time and families have to get into a new routine and a new pattern mm -hmm. as you said incorporating this into their daily routine making sure they're as consistent as possible with adding in the supplementation I'm sure you, with your population, even more so than I do, you know, sometimes there are the concerns with supplementing iron and constipation. I think every female has probably experienced this in some regard <laughs> of, you know, prenatal or postpartum where it's like, please don't make me take something that makes me constipated. <laughs> but especially with kids, we're trying to help a concern or a known issue, but obviously we're not trying to create a new issue either. And so knowing that this could take three, six, nine, 12 months for a family what would you offer as kind of some of the uh, most effective advice or, you know, treatment approaches that you see in order to make sure that iron supplementation isn't also, you know, uh, compromising their bowel movements and creating an issue with constipation for the child? Mm -hmm. I don't see it, to be honest, as much as we used to, like when I first started practice, the, the medic not medication, the, the iron is different. Like there's different forms of iron now that don't cause those issues that we would see in babies. Like, you know, I remember even people would say when I switched to iron fortified formula, like it's like, they're all constipated. They never go to the room. <laughs> like, okay. But now they have different forms. So there's, you know, like an iron bisglycinate, that's really gentle. There's a lot that are really easy on the digestive tract that don't cause those um, same concerns. I know with babies, they, um, I won't say brands because obviously I don't want to do that, but um, 
there used to be where you'd have to make sure you're getting it back into the throat, not on the teeth because it would stain them black. And then, you know, that's terrible and awful. So there's different options that are out there. So I encourage families, you know, to actually ask if there's option, different options that you can try. It's just a matter of also too, can a child swallow a pill? Can they, um, is it a chewable or is it a liquid? Just finding what works for them. There's a lot of powders now also that you just add to water <clears throat> that taste actually pretty good. So it's just a matter of finding the right kind. And I think that's helpful too, because if parents are thinking, okay, if we're going to go into this, you know, mentally prepare, mm -hmm. let alone physically prepare that this could take up, you know, anywhere from six to 12 months, we'll just say. And to know that like they don't have to struggle unnecessarily. So I'm sure for both of us, we see it being very challenging sometimes for a child to, or for a child to take a supplement, you know, depending on the form. And it's like, we don't have, we're not trying to create additional struggle. So if the supplement form isn't working, reach out to your healthcare provider or your pediatric dietitian, ask them, you know, this chewable is too chewy or this powder tastes bad, or, you know, this droplet is turning their teeth dark or, you know, yeah. whatever it might be. Same way with constipation. If you see like, this isn't just an odd week, this is like, wow, this seems to be a noticeable difference, you know, reach out and to kind of see what changes might be able to make. So you can still supplement the iron as needed, but not do so in a way that's going to create, you know, new challenges in either, um, helping them be compliant with the regimen yeah. that they're on, um, or create new, you know, health issues or discomforts and things like that. And I, I find it's, it's mostly the compliance of actually taking it every day and we're human beings children are just the same where I have a whole cupboard of supplements and I forget right like it just is a matter of having it out on the table or wherever you want to have it um up high if it's you know it can be a drug so we don't want that but in eye contact so you can see it and actually taking it every day I find that's really the biggest barrier is actually getting it in as a daily thing that that it can prolong the iron deficiency be just because we're not getting it in so it's just habit forming too it's all of us we all need help <laughs> yeah absolutely well as we wrap up I'd love to hear from your perspective as a parent but also as a pediatric dietitian what's something that you would kind of like for parents to know early on in order to help them promote the to the best of their ability their child having a healthy, stable iron status throughout their child's development? That's a big one. So I always want to be no proactive. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, I just feel, I want to encourage families if they, if they have an intuition, if they feel there's something, it's hard because not a lot of people know that this could be those correlation between things, but just using your intuition, be proactive because if we sit on it, it can, I hate to be like detrimental to your health, but it can have long-term effects going forward. So just, just be open to the idea that, you know, it could be something as simple as iron. That's it. And just know that it's not going to cure everything. <laughs> I'm not saying that by any means, but just be proactive. It's a hard, it's, it's definitely a hard thing. Like it's a puzzle piece with kids, right? You never know what's, could be bothering them, what could be affecting them. So it's just like a little puzzle, but iron is sort of a clue. If you're a parent detective, you're trying to figure things out. Why not just try to try to figure this stuff, this part out? 
and to see that worst case scenario, you're just ruling out that iron isn't yeah. the issue. You know, yeah. I mean, if if all else fails, we'll say that at least you have the data to know, huh, okay, it's not iron. That's not, you know, what we need to look into. Again, it could be a myriad of different things, but at least to have some of the data to kind of put concerns or questions at ease if it's not, or to validate and help uh, direct the action plan if it is. So I think it can be empowering on either side of of the results if if parents can be proactive and uh, checking into it. So Angela, thank you so much for being on the Veggies and Virtues show. It's very helpful to get this information from you as a resident expert on the topic, but also someone who can just kind of chat through many of the nuances that unfortunately parents don't have uh, the time or often attention to be able to sit and chat with uh, maybe their child's pediatrician about uh, just a general well child check. So I appreciate you giving this information. And I know I asked you on the first episode, but I'd love to hear again, share with my listeners where they can connect with you, how they can find you. And if they have you know questions or want to follow up with you, where's the best place to do that? Yeah. So they can find us on Instagram at nourished.beginnings.kids or our website. We put out blogs and information on nourishbeginnings.ca, not com. <laughs> We're in Canada. Um, and yeah, those are the two places. You can send us a direct message through Instagram if you have a question. We have um, an iron deficiency, nutrition and iron deficiency course that we, we're running. So you can, if you have information or questions about that, that's on our website, or you can send us um, uh, information or uh, email about that, and we can answer those questions as well. But always happy to answer questions about iron deficiency. Well, great. Well, thank you. <laughs> I think I'll, we'll need to do uh, some follow-up episodes on all the other areas of specialty that I know you work in, because I feel like they're all really helpful topics that parents have a lot of questions about, but don't necessarily know where to, to take those questions to. Mm-hmm. So thanks so much for being on today and for sharing um, all your insights and advice and helping parents hopefully uh, tackle any issues with iron deficiency that their family might have. Thanks so much, Ashley. It has been a joy having you on the podcast today. And if you've enjoyed it as well, I have a quick favor to ask. Do you mind hopping over to Apple Podcasts and leaving me a written review? This will only take you a hot second, but it truly blesses me every time I get to read what one of you write over there. And it allows me to bless others through this podcast and the episodes to come. The other thing that you can do is to take a screenshot of this episode and tag me over on Instagram at veggies and virtue. I would love to see what action steps that you're taking from this episode and also to support your family in the journey moving forward. Until next time, thanks for coming over to chat at my kitchen counter. Remember that you will always have a seat and a snack waiting for you here.